You're listening to the audio from Tuesday Night Class at CA Church, located in Coquitlam, British Columbia. We hope this teaching helps you grow in your personal relationship with Jesus Christ. All right, well, welcome to uh, First Peter, class number three. And it has been sunny these uh, last couple weeks, which has been nice and so nice. My garden's actually growing. I have uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight tomato plants in front of me trying to grow. Um, waiting for the day where I can take them outside, but apparently it's still early, according to my neighbors. Uh, but it wasn't that long ago when it was cold outside. And one of the things that happens in BC every winter is you hear stories, actually not just in the winter, but also, but it's more dangerous in the winter. You hear people getting, going hiking, uh, going skiing or snowshoeing, and getting lost in the mountains. And uh, there were some tragic stories this past um, winter. And what happens is not like these people can't hike. I mean, a lot of them know how to hike, but what happens is the conditions change quickly up in the mountains. And um, when the conditions change and if they get lost, if they get disoriented, um, and if they are unprepared, uh, doesn't, it doesn't bode well. And so if when the weather changes, or when you find yourself in unfamiliar territory and you don't have suitable clothing, you don't have emergency supplies, um, it's difficult to deal with the challenges that come your way. And uh, in many ways, I was thinking about this, this is kind of the situation that Peter is addressing in 1 Peter, okay? Um, here you have these people, these churches, that um, they've given their life to follow Jesus. And the surrounding culture, the surrounding society in varying degrees and at various uh, times oppose them, like uh, are, are quite critical of these churches. And so you have these churches and they're experiencing opposition. And these, this opposition shows up in, in unexpected ways. And Peter's basically saying, you need to be prepared. You need to be prepared when conditions change suddenly. And if you're not prepared, you're in a lot of trouble. And I was thinking about this week, I was thinking about the church in Coquitlam, or the church, like our church. Um, you know, last year, I remember I should go down. I, I should actually be stoned in, in the old fashioned way, like actually hit with stones for being a false prophet. Because I remember saying to my dear brother, Ray Keelan, uh, during uh, when I was teaching um, the Ten Commandments, I'm like, Ray, Ray, Ray. I said, this virus is nothing. It'll last just a couple weeks. We'll be back at church before you know it. So one of my very many failed prophecies, but Ray, Ray you knew, Ray, he, I remember that you told me, you said, no, there's something about this that you're, and I'm like, ah, oh, don't worry about it. But um, conditions changed suddenly last March. And often, and often the church did not know how to deal with those changes. And even today, because we are living in these strange times, how do we adjust to the changes that are happening almost every day? Well, that's what First Peter is actually all about. Well, not all about, but then that's one of the big purposes that Peter has in writing this letter is to prepare the church for 
sudden and quickly changing circumstances, right? And uh, if you remember, last uh, a couple of weeks ago when we started First Peter, Peter uh, he begins he begins by reminding the church. And I think it's it's intentional. He be, he reminds the church of their identity, and he says, you know, you need to remember that you are exiles in this world. You are elect exiles. Remember that? It was two weeks ago, a long time ago. You are strangers in a strange land. And uh, God has designed this so that we, he's designed it so that we could be elect exiles so that one, we can learn obedience to Jesus Christ. And two, that we can depend on the work of the spirit in our lives as exiles. Then Peter last week, he was talking about this living hope that, we, um, that we've been given. And that the church needs to hold on to this living hope. And we can, it's a living hope because our hope is Jesus Christ and he has been raised from the dead. He is a living hope. He is our living hope. And so we cling to the reality that we've been given an inheritance. An inheritance which is a guarantee of life to come. And so in the meantime, though we may experience trials for a while, um, we can endure it because we know that this is not our home. Uh, that there will come a day where we will see Jesus face to face. And we, even though we haven't seen him face to face, we love him with a joy inexpressible, but we are longing for the day where we get to see him face to face. And so we also know that the worst thing we experience will only be the second to last thing. The last thing will be eternal life. Okay, this is all that Peter has talked about so far. And then we get to verse 13. And so um, what I'd like to do is look at verse 13 and, and read our next section. But I thought at first we will pray. So let's pray as we dive into this next section of uh, 1 Peter. Lord Jesus, we come to you recognizing that we are completely dependent upon you. For many of us, our minds are busy. We've just had a quick bite to eat. We've come home from work and uh, we're tuning in. But our hearts and our minds are busy. And so we pray that you would help us to lean in and uh, receive your word. We pray that uh, your word would impress in our hearts that we would hear from you tonight and respond to you. That is our desire, and we commit tonight to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So as I touched on last week, by the time we get to verse 13, I mean, Peter, he, he, does, he does what a lot of people do, is he starts off trying to just bless the, uh, the church, and then he starts theologizing and talking about different things about the reality of our salvation. But basically, verses 1 through 12, Peter is saying, look, this is who you are. This is how God has called you. And then you're confronted in verse 13 with the very first word is therefore. You've heard this before. Whenever you see a therefore, you have to ask, what is it there for? Um, it is therefore to say, okay, in light of all this, what do we do? And I mentioned this last week, but this is absolutely key. 
And this is a key to understanding Peter. This is a key to understanding the entire New Testament. That uh, in all the letters, all the letters, it begins with, this is who you are in Christ. Therefore, this is how you respond. So you begin with the indicative, this is who you are, and that leads to the imperative. So this is how you react to, who, to this knowledge. Don't get those backwards. If you get those backwards and you think you have to do all these things in order to be adopted and to have an inheritance and to have joy unspeakable and a living hope, you have to do all these things in order to somehow earn this, you're in a lot of trouble. You remove the cross. We start with what God has done to us, for us, in his grace, and then we live in response. If you read all of Paul's letters, they're all structured that way. Over and over again, this is who you are in Christ. Therefore, as God's chosen and, you know, holy ones, clothe yourself with compassion, kindness. You know, Colossians chapter 3, there's an example. Okay, so yes, we get to uh, the imperative, therefore. Let's take a look. If you have your Bible, turn to First uh, Peter, and uh, we're going to begin in verse 13. First Peter, beginning in verse 13, and I'm going to read, uh, I'm reading from the English Standard Version. First Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 13. Therefore, preparing your minds for action and being sober-minded, Set your hope fully on the grace that will be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy, for I am holy. And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, Conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in these last times for the sake of you, who through him, are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory, so that your faith and hope are in God. Having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass, and all its glory like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. Wow. Again, a lot. Peter packs a lot into a letter. Um, so he begins. He begins with therefore, which is, a you know, the, the, the Greek word for therefore, the one that's used here is just very straightforward. It's like, therefore, this is, this is what you got to do. Um, what I've just said is true. If what I just said is true, this is what it means. And uh, so he says, you know, you've been given a living hope. You're now called to live in hope. The object of your hope is the grace of God, which he's bestowed at Jesus, uh, on Jesus's return. And he said, because of all these things, you need to respond. And so how do we respond? He says, therefore, 
he says, um, actually, this whole section is interesting. Before we dive into this whole section, is uh, has a lot to say about a word that in our culture we don't really like very much. And uh, it's, it's a word, um, it's a word called holiness. It's the H word, holiness. Um, and Peter, in this whole section, there's a lot of echoes from the Old Testament, in particular, the book of Leviticus. He quotes Leviticus, be holy as I am holy. Um, and so he keeps talking about that we've been redeemed. All this has happened so that we can live a life set apart for God to be holy. But let me just ask you this. When I say the word holy or holiness, um, what comes to mind? And, and, and is this word, and um, just your gut reaction, is this, is this a positive or a negative word? Why negative? No, I'm asking the questions, Nara. Okay. <laughs> sure. <laughs> Positive. Positive. Okay. Yeah. Why would it be negative? Actually, I will ask your question. Why would it be negative? It would be negative for the around you, because they don't they don't like to compare themselves they don't like to uh discipline themselves that's why that's going to be negative normal in the around you in this world is negative yeah. because they don't want to because they think it's hard really they don't know why they don't like it maybe i think yeah, maybe yeah i think i think for some i mean sometimes when i hear the word you know holy and you know somebody's a holy roller or yeah you're not living a holy life it's not always a positive sense sometimes it's more of a well, who do you think you are kind of, I'll just, I'm being honest. That's kind of sometimes my reaction when I hear somebody telling me to be holy. <laughs> but I, I could, think people I could be alone. Yeah, go sorry. ahead. People think holy when you, you have to be like extra saint, you know, like, and they don't know the meaning of this word. Yeah. And well, and, and often, well, how do, how do a lot of people, what do they think of when they think, holy like in, in our world like when you hear the word holy what does it usually entail what does it mean uh, setting a standard yeah you got to be a martyr or something to be holy you have to be like perfect yeah you have to be perfect and sometimes it's used in a way that's kind of yeah it's kind of critical of somebody else or or no. a sense of you know who do you yeah again who do you think you are and you're telling me to act this way yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah. Holiness reminds me of the Pope and all his people dressed up for ceremony and, you know, all the smells and bells and the, and the, Remember the old Batman series. He's always go holy this and holy that. Yeah. Holy Batman smokes Batman. Series, Batman. Yeah. <laughs> That's right. So yeah. back to your question, David, uh, you say that uh, if I read this, what do I think? I think it's asking me to be perfect. And now I'm thinking, well, I, I'm a sinner. I know I'm not perfect. Uh oh. So how am I going to, I'm going to live up to that. And Good. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, it's a, it's a standard that, that man, it's really tiring to try to reach that. And most likely I'm not going to reach it. Would you agree? Like something like that? Yeah. Isn't, isn't holy just like purposed, you know, like set apart for 
to do something set apart yeah, for a purpose. Yeah, so yeah. it doesn't yeah. mean you're going to get the purpose right all the time. You just, that's the plan. Yeah. No, that's true. David, go ahead. I think some people take it even further, what you said. They would think, oh, yeah, it's too high. It's unattainable. I can't reach it. So I might as well go and sin, you know. What's the point? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And sometimes it's for people, you know, you know, you know, people who, it's something that you impose upon people. Um, and holiness means usually don't do this and don't do that and you better not do this. And yeah, it's, it's, it's a word that I'd say in our culture is not always seen very positively. And I would say even within the church, it's a little more nuanced as well. I mean, you guys are all over your, your definition, so you know what it means. But I think, you know, a lot of people struggle with that term. Even as you were saying, Peter, you know, this idea is like, wow, that's a standard. That's a be holy as I'm holy, says God. Wow. All right. I'll try. Right. So but that's actually what's being said here. Now, Peter's going to say a lot more that I think is going to help flesh this out. But he says, in light of all that Jesus has done, the, the big picture is be holy because I am holy. Be holy like God. Uh, he begins by saying, all right, uh, therefore, preparing your mind for your minds for action. That's actually not what the, the Greek says. The, the, I mean, it's, it's kind of the same meaning. It, what it literally means is basically girding up your loins. There you go. Girding up the loins of your mind. <laughs> What does it mean to gird up your loins? Well, in the ancient world, you'd often wear a long robe, right? And so if, you're, if, you had to, if you had to prepare yourself for action, let's say you had to run, well, if you have this long robe on, um, it's like, you know, running in a miniskirt or something. I don't know. Actually, I've never worn a miniskirt. It's just a full. Uh, but um, this idea that you would have to hike up your robes to free up your legs so that you can run. That's literally what it means. But it's not just gird up your loins so you can run. It's gird up the loins of your mind, which is interesting. Gird up the loins of your mind. So it's interesting. So what does this mean? Well, on one hand, it means make sure that you have freedom to think correctly. That's partly what it means. Uh, in the present context, it means, um, you know, pay attention, remember what God has done for us in Christ. Um, remember that he intends us to live as elect aliens in this world. And as we live, we're to roll up our sleeves, to gird up our loins and get at it and live the life that we're called to live. And um, the, when, when people, if they knew the Old Testament and they read this, gird up the loins of your minds, their, their mind also would have an echo from the book of Exodus. In fact, you hear a lot of the book of Exodus in here. And that was the, uh, God's commandment to the Israelites to get ready to leave Egypt, you know, to gird up their loins and get ready to go, like be prepared to go. Um, but I want to linger here for a minute because what does girding up the loins of your mind mean practically? Well, for one, it means this, uh, that what you think matters. 
what you think and how you think matters. You know, a lot of Christians, they focus on, on so much on doing the right thing and making sure you're doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing. But doing the right thing and not doing the wrong thing is, is shaped by how you think, how you see things. And um, I think one of the challenges, um, you know, when we are a follower of Jesus Christ, it requires a change of thinking. That's what Romans chapter 12 talks about, the renewing of our minds. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that you can discern what the will of God is, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so to tie up or to gird up the loins of our minds means we need to take steps to actually think things properly. And one of the things that I'm quite passionate about, as some of you would know, is the cultivation of a, of a Christian worldview or, or the cultivation of learning to think Christianly about the world in which we live. And I struggle with this. I struggle that um, a lot of Christians don't take the life of the mind very seriously especially in our tradition, in an evangelical tradition, uh, the life of the mind is usually secondary. It's like, let's just get to work, get her done. But um, we often forget about um, thinking rightly and thinking carefully about things. Anyhow, that's what Peter's getting at. It's like, what you think matters? Because how you think about the world I mean, you know, the exam an example is if you're a materialist and you think that all what you see is what you get, there is nothing more to this world than the material world. Well, that's going to affect how you find meaning in life. Because if, if, if all you see is, is all there is, there is no afterlife, there is no spiritual life, then you're going to live in a certain way that's going to be quite different. Um, I know, I mean, I, I live that way. Um, and so if you live in a world where you say there is no meaning and that you've, you're convinced that there's no meaning to this world, well, then you may as well eat, drink for tomorrow you die. So we need to think very carefully about what we believe and how that affects how we see one another, how we see our world. Um, and we need to guard our minds. And that's the next part of what he says. He says, preparing your mind for action or girding up the loins of your mind he says, and being sober-minded, and being sober-minded. What does it mean to be sober-minded? Well, it means to be in control of what we're thinking and not in danger of irrational thinking. So let me ask you this. What are some of the things that befuddle our mind? That mess up the way we think? and affect our sober-mindedness. Sin, yeah, doubt, fear, oh, very good, yeah. Oh, I like the way you went there, yeah. Doubt and fear, oh, that's good, yeah. When you're afraid, you, it's hard to think clearly. That's really good, Pat, yeah. Um, for me, it would be watching too many YouTube videos. Yeah, and I actually put that down, yeah, good. Go on, Gene. And in the evening would be like the actual drinking of alcohol is befuddling the minds, not being sober minded. So, yeah. yeah. Yeah, to actually not be sober minded if I if be <laughs> yeah. drinking of alcohol or, or, or different things. Yeah. Good. 
Yeah, I put Netflix down. <laughs> and, and not just Netflix as in, oh, I'm just going to binge watch because I don't feel like thinking. There is that. But there's also, um, you know, in, the Pro in Proverbs, it says, um, like a city without walls, so is a person who lacks self-control. And if you have no walls and the walls are down and anything can come in and anything can go out. And so we need to be careful about even what we're allowing in. Um, or at least we need to be, learn to th think carefully about these things. Anyhow, that's, that's what Peter's getting at in this passage. He says, we need to think soberly. Why? Well, that's the starting point to setting our hope fully on the grace that would be brought to us at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It helps us fix our minds on the things of Jesus. So Jesus, Peter is essentially telling us, um, yeah, being, don't be a news junkie. I, I just saw that one. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Peter's telling us, remember who you are. Remember whose you are, who you belong to. Remember your inheritance. Remember the end of the story, that this world is not all there is. Live in the reality of Jesus. Remember that the trials that you face in this life are just for a little while. And so again, Peter wants us to be heavenly minded so we can be of some earthly good. He wants us to be of earthly good, but we get there by being heavenly minded because only then when we are heavenly minded, can we live in the world as he intends us to live? Okay. So that's what we get. That's all packed into just one verse. Wow. And then he gets to verse 14. He says, look at verse 14. He says, as obedient children, do not be conformed to the passions of your former ignorance. But as he who called you is holy, you also be holy in all your conduct. Since it is written, you shall be holy for I am holy. And if, um, yeah, we'll stop there. <laughs> There's enough in that one. So he talks about um, uh, as obedient children. And, you know, this is a theme that he runs over and over again because uh, he talks about us being born again and this idea of being born again god is our father we are his obedient children um, is a big focus we are part of a new family and we can call the living god of the universe father but we are to be living as his obedient children now hey let me ask you again <laughs> when you hear the word obey what is your gut reaction is it a positive or is it a negative reaction? A negative. What was that? Negative, I heard. Yeah. Why, why do you think it's negative? Donna, you said that, right? Why do you think it's negative? Um, it brings to mind um, someone trying to lord over you when you're, when you're supposed to be obedient. So for me, it brings to mind someone who's like overbearing and and you know, kind of pushy. <laughs> yeah, yeah, like coercive, maybe even. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, control. I see, Josh, you put uh, uh, control. Yeah. Positive is the best way to show my love for God. Yeah. Well, it's interesting because, and I'll, I'll just be straight with you. Like, I, I struggle sometimes when I'm teaching to talk about using the O word, the obey word. Um, and partly because the word has been misused by the church in many ways over the years. 
that to obey is you obey your priest or you obey the authority. And even though there may be some abuse or some horrible things going on, you're still called to obey. You know, it's the idea of blind obedience, doing something that even though you shouldn't be doing, like that kind of a thing. And so I've kind of strayed away, but if you actually read the Bible carefully, there's obedience everywhere in the Bible. <laughs> and it's just very straightforward. Um, you know, Jesus says when he leaves, he says, therefore, go, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to obey, to observe all that I have commanded you. Um, o- obedience is a big deal. And uh, yeah, obedience to God. Yeah, that, that is important. There is something that comes to my mind when we say obey because we make ourselves separate from the God or the things we want to obey. That's why we go against that one. But we're supposed to be reborn. We're supposed to empty ourselves and take the new uh, born for ourselves through him and through his generation. We don't belong to our generation. We belong to the father heavenly father's generation that's why uh, if we go through that one the obedience shouldn't be negative things but because it's still we have ourselves and we want to obey obey the other rules it's going to be conflict somehow yeah 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 that's true and it's it is not always clear you know i just think it's a it's a word that's kind of fallen out of usage in in our culture like to talk you know if you talk to um you know, to a high school class, for example, and talk about the importance of obedience. I mean, that's going to go over like a lead balloon. Um, if you talk to even Christians today, you talk about the importance of obedience. It's, it's awkward. It really is. And it's just, I think it's indicative a little bit of, of our culture. And also, again, of, of how the word has been abused in the past. But that's a word that Peter uses. Uh, it's a word that uh, even in First John, what does John say? He talks about those who do not obey God's commands don't love him. I mean, that's it's pretty, pretty straight. Um, those who do not obey God's commands cannot claim to know him. Yikes. It's, it's, it, and the, these are my words. This is, you know, from scripture. And so Peter gets at them. He says, you know, we're obedient children. He, what does he say? Yeah. As obedient children. He said, this is our calling when we are born again we have a new life new life that begins and he says we need to turn our backs on our former ignorance i mean i like peter this sounds like peter the fisherman because he's kind of he's just kind of tells it straight um and i love his language he just says you know don't go back to being ignorant like again that's not even uh very uh politically correct to call somebody ignorant but he recognizes that uh, their old ways, and he's going to bring this up again, their old ways were ways of ignorance, which, again, gives us a clue. If we're trying to figure out the recipients of this letter, it probably seems to suggest that a lot of them, at least, were, um, were Gentiles. I think you can make a case for that. Um, but that's what Peter says. He says, before we knew Jesus, we were like animals who simply followed our appetites. Um, and, and, and to go on living how we used to live now that we know Jesus, now that we've tasted and seen that he is good. Um, well, that's what ignorant people do. That's what Peter's getting at. 
which brings us back to the H word, <laughs> holiness. Four times it's used in this passage. Four times, holiness, be holy. What how God wants us to be holy. A holy life is what we're called to live. There's holiness and obedience. It's like, wow, this is pretty, pretty heavy stuff. Now, one of the reasons, again, this whole question of holiness and obedience, I think one of the reasons why people struggle with that is, and, and the church is sometimes taught this, is they say, be holy, be obedient, so that you are saved. And that's where you get it backwards. That, and see, you have people trying to live righteous life or so-called holy lives, obedient lives, thinking that the more they do this, the more God loves them. The more God will maybe save them. And that is to undermine the gospel, right? The gospel, our starting point is what Jesus has done. And, uh, and that is encouraging. I mean, that, that is what we need to hold on to. And we need to recognize that because, because of the work of Jesus Christ, we have been adopted we've brought from darkness to light we've been gone from being enemies to of god to being his adopted children so this is all because of the gospel but the whole story of scripture is this this is what jesus has done for you by grace through faith you are now an adopted son and daughter of the most high and then all the scripture says this this is who you are so start acting like it. Start living out this new life. Don't go back to your old ways. Start living out, this, living out this new life. And that's what Peter's getting at. This is what you've experienced. Don't go back to your ignorant ways. Don't go back. Right? Does that make sense? And that's the gospel. And, and the reason why, and I think Peter's being careful here in the same way that I'm being careful because you know, the heart's a tricky thing. And this idea of, you know, I need to be holy so that God loves me, or I need to be, you know, obedient so that I'm okay with God is, it, it's very easy to go down that road. And so uh, Peter's saying, no, no, this is who you are. This, that's why he spends all that time at the beginning saying, this is who you are in Christ. This is your great inheritance, living hope, blah, blah, blah. Now, therefore, gird up your loins. <laughs> <laughs> be sober-minded, right? Does that make sense? Yeah? Cool. All right. Uh, now, let's see what he says in verse 17. In verse 17, he says, And if you call on him as father who judges impartially according to each one's deeds, conduct yourself with fear throughout the time of your exile, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. He was foreknown before the foundations of the world, but was made manifest in the last time for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Okay. So, if holiness, if God's holiness is not enough motivation for us to live holy lives, Peter gives us another motivation. 
And he says, yes, God is your father. God is your father. And we've been invited to pray to God. Well, how does Jesus teach us to pray? Our father, right? Our father who art in heaven. So we can call the creator of the universe father. And, and Peter is underlying that. So, you know, he's heard this. He's heard this somewhere. He's probably heard this from Jesus and the way Jesus taught him to pray. I think this is another, you know, just small uh, bit of evidence that the Peter who's writing this is Peter, none other than Peter than the, the, the fisherman. Um, but then he says something interesting about the father. He says, the father who judges impartially according to one's deeds. So what does that mean? Well, partly what it means is that if we're to address God as father, we need to recognize who he is. As father, it doesn't mean that God ceases to be judge. In fact, part of the issue is that in Western culture today, especially in, in, in more Anglo-Saxon culture, father has not, the, the word father doesn't have the same weightiness that it used to have. It still has, in, in, especially in Eastern cultures um, and Middle Eastern cultures, um, but not so much in Western culture. Uh, father, especially in, in the first century, uh, the father was, it was, you know, they were the pater familias. They were the head of the household and, you know, within the Greco-Roman world had a lot of weight and a lot of authority. And so the word father in the, in the first century has a lot of weight. And so, um, so how do we, as his adopted children, how do we relate to our heavenly father? Well, we recognize, yes, he's father, but also um, he is calling us into a certain way of living. Sometimes I hear people say, <laughs> sometimes I hear people say that uh, because of what Jesus Christ did on the cross, when the father looks at you, he looks at you uh, as he sees Jesus. He sees you, he sees Jesus he looks through Jesus to see you and he sees you righteous in the same way as Jesus is righteous because we have received Jesus's righteousness. And there's a lot of truth to that because of the work of Jesus Christ. We've been robed with his righteousness, nothing we bring to the table, but we've been saved. And God, the father looks at us through his son, Jesus Christ. And we have been, and, and we're righteous in his, in his sight. Um, but again, the whole call of the Christian life is, okay, this is who you are. So let's live up to what we've already attained. And, and sometimes as Christians, we think that God is like a doddering old father who kind of winks at our indiscretions, knowing, hey, you're weak, it's okay. Uh, but we have to realize that God, when he sees us, he actually sees us. that God, the father, the creator of the universe, his power is so vast that he can see you in the details of your life.
I don't know about you, but I get a little, uh, you know, on one hand, I'm quite comforted that, you know, the living God of the universe knows me by name. He knows everything about me. He knows the details of my life. Um, but I also get a little uncomfortable that the God of the universe knows me by name and he knows the details of my life uh, because he sees me. And he, he, he knows, he knows everything about me. Now, yes, he loves me. He's, he's, a, he's a loving father. God is love. Absolutely. Um, but he's also just. He is also just. And how we live matters. How we live matters. And that's what I think Peter's getting at. Um, and, and you see this in the New Testament. These are passages that aren't often preached, but it's stories of Ananias and Sapphira in the book of Acts who, who, who lie to the Holy Spirit and, and doesn't bode well for them, right? Uh, you see Paul getting after the church in Corinth for the way that they're treating the poor, especially during the Lord's Supper. You hear Jesus himself to the church in Laodicea saying, you know, you're neither hot nor cold. I'm gonna, you're lukewarm and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. I mean, these are, these are passages we also need to pay attention to because God takes sin very seriously. And I often tell people this, but God is not a system. Christianity is not a system. It's not some kind of worldview where everything works out. God is personal. Um, he is not, as C.S. Lewis says, a tame lion, right? And so Peter, what he's saying, he's saying, look, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of the day, at the end of all days, you and I are going to have to stand before God and give an account of how we've lived our life. Now, our names are written in the book of life because of the work of Jesus, but we are still going to have the discomfort <laughs> of, of saying, okay, how did, how did I live my days? Did I number my days? Did I live my life um, girding my loins, prepared for action, sober-minded? Or did I take at least 35% of my days and devoted them to Netflix and YouTube? <laughs> We're going to have to answer those things, right? And that's what Peter's getting at. And I don't know about you, it's, it's uncomfortable. But it reminds me, you know, like, you know, God loves, it's not like he's saying, okay, you get going, get working hard for me because, you know, you, you know I, need, I need your work. It's just, this is part of the transformation that he has for us, you know, to make us into the people we're supposed to be. It is for our good and we have to trust him in that. Any, uh, any thoughts, comments on that one? Uh, I'd like to say that when I, when I see God the Father, who's holy and, and just, but uh, when, he, when he asked me to do something, uh, I knew that it just seems unfair because I'm going to fail and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to miss the mark and I'm, he's going to kind of punish me. But when I met, Jesus, who loves me, and I knew that the Father who sent him loves me, and the Holy Spirit came and changed my heart from rock to a heart, a heart of love, because I received his love. I see, I received his goodness. I knew how much he loves me and how much he was willing to go to the, to the end of the earth for me. And then I, I, 
I'm willing to just forget about myself and take up my cross and follow him. And so in this particular case, all this about fearing God and doing things for God should be automatic because our desire is to love him because he loves us. And all the things that he said to do is our love. So, yeah. and I see it differently. And that's how you were saying about it from the beginning, that if you see things correctly, everything falls into place. And I see the truth that lives in me. So it makes a huge difference in my life. So everything else uh, is yeah. in the perspective. Well, uh, Peter, I appreciate you saying that because you know what? It often, I, I find that generally for Christians, and somebody just pointed this out to me as well. Um, one of the biggest questions, I'd say the two biggest questions that Christians have in our life relate to to these two questions is 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 a father really as loving as the son says he is and the second question is can god be trusted and if he can be trusted if he can be trusted and we have every reason to believe he can be trusted then what we go through and what we experience as we try as we live out obedience as we live out separated lives, you know, holy lives, uh, as elect exiles, um, it will transform us for the good. But it really comes down to the question of whether or not we trust him. And though a lot of Christians, and I, you know, I struggle with it in my own life. Uh, I come back to those questions over and over again because I have to ask the question, okay, do I really trust you? It's easy to say I trust you, but I find the biggest challenge in the Christian life is believing what I say I believe. Um, do I really believe it, right? Because if you do trust them, then that, 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 that changes things. So yeah, no, that's good. That's good. good. I mean, Peter calls us, and, and it's an old term. Again, it's just like holiness. The other thing he talks about is... Um, he talks about living in the fear of the Lord In the fear of the Lord. You see that in verse 17, he says, we need to live in fear of the Lord. Now we know in Proverbs, fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Of wisdom. Yeah. I see you all going. Yeah. It's the beginning of wisdom and fear of the Lord is not this. Oh, I'm afraid, you know, you know, you're, you're not good. You're not loving. And you're just going to hammer me. That's not the biblical understanding of fear of the Lord. Fear of the Lord is reverence. Yes, it is recognizing that God is God and we are not. But it's also recognizing that he is good. Right. And uh, our man, uh, Ivan De Silva, uh, wrote uh, with Bruce Walke. He gave me a copy of it. Um, he goes to our church, Ivan. Some of you know him. His commentary on Proverbs. And then he unpacks the whole fear of the Lord at the beginning. And um, yeah, so that's, that's, and so Peter says, you know, we need to live our life uh, in the fear of the Lord. And to live in fear of the Lord is to recognize that this life that we live in, it's, it's not all there is, that we will spend eternity in the presence of God. And our time here is temporary. And that's why Peter returns to this idea. He says, um, conduct yourselves with fear 
throughout the time of your exile, right? Throughout the time of your exile. It's a, it's a short period of time, but you, this is how we're called to live. And then he gives us another reason, one more reason why we need to live this life that's separated for God. And, uh, and we read that in verse 18, where he talks about, we, we, we praise God for causing us to be born again. Um, and, we're and we have to recall what God has done for us to set us free. And so the remaining part, uh, up until verse 22, um, he's talking about the absolute incredible cost that was paid in order to set us free. Uh, that God did not use a bit of pocket change in order to redeem us. I uh, did not use animal sacrifice uh, to deal with our sins. Uh, but God used the blood of his son, Jesus Christ, to set us free. And he, and he, he emphasizes this. And uh, he, he emphasizes this. He says, you have been redeemed. Now it's important because, again, this is a clue why I think most of the people in the church are probably Gentiles. And I think there's a lot of slaves because he addresses slaves later on. This idea of redemption is a very, very important theme. The problem is, is in our culture today, when we say redeem, what do we mean? We're usually referring to some coupons at Save-On, right? You know, have you redeemed your points, right? Oh, you know, here's your yogurt. Do you want to redeem your points? Um, but redemption has a very different meaning in the Greco-Roman world, which is, you know, a, a, a payment to set someone free or something that would, 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 uh, would transform someone from, from bondage to, to, to liberty. And so for Peter, he's saying, you know, you have to realize that you have been redeemed, right? He gets to that. He says, knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things like silver and gold, because that's how you'd be redeemed. You, you'd, you'd pay your way out of slavery, right? Or you'd have somebody pay. Because you didn't get free because of, you know, somebody paid a few shekels to get you free but you're set free because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. So it's a reminder. And he's using this language of slavery. And he's also using this language of, um, again, of your, um, of their former way of life. He goes, you didn't get this from your forefathers. <laughs> Meaning your forefathers, you know, just taught you ways of bondage. They're not teaching you freedom but you have been set free because of the work, because of the precious blood of Jesus Christ. And this, this is a game changer. And so one of the things that Peter's emphasized is, is for you and I to meditate on the cost that it cost God to set us free. And I'll tell you, I'll just, um, be straight. I, I I don't spend as much time on that as I should, as I as I want to actually, because when I meditate on on what Jesus has done for me, um, that changes everything. But I don't do that. You know, I do it at Easter. You know, you know, Good Friday. You remember what happens? Jesus did on the cross, and we all remember that. But do I remember it all throughout the year? 
Peter's saying, this is something we need to keep. This is a motivation for holy living, is to meditate on what Jesus has done for us. Any thoughts on that? I can't imagine. I can't imagine the father going through what he did, having his son suffering like that on the cross. Yeah. My son. I have two sons. And I think, could I sit there and watch while he was tortured and then carrying the weight of all the sins? And then he had to turn away because the sin was too much. The father had to turn away. Jesus was just like abandoned and bearing the sins of the entire world. So, yeah, yeah I can't imagine. It's just yeah. much. Yeah, yeah. Like, who am I that you would die for me? Yeah. You know, Kevin, you bring up an interesting point where you talked about uh, communion, because I think one of the reasons why, you know, this past year, certainly I have not meditated on the work of Jesus on the cross is because we haven't had communion because that you're right. That is a time where we, where we meditate on the great cost that was paid to set us free. And this past year, I mean, I think I've taken communion twice, maybe three times. Uh, David, you could, yeah. you could try taking communion every time you have your food. So that as you're giving grace, you're saying, Thank you for this food. Your body broken for us. Yeah, I could. This tea. Or I should. <laughs> yeah, that's good. Shared on a cross for me. And Jesus said, as often as you eat, you trying to remember him. And yeah. Yeah, you could do that, right? Try yeah. it. Yeah. No, that's good. That is- I think Lent or getting rid of something that you really, really like for a short time, like helps giving you perspective on much greater sacrifices. Yeah, no, that's good. No, I appreciate that. That's that's good. Good, good thoughts. Um, And in our daily prayer. Yeah. is is to remember that. Yeah, that's good, Dave. Um, Peter says something interesting after this. He says, um, he talks about, it's kind of mysterious passage. Look at what he says next. Not sure if we're going to be able to fully understand what he, he says in verse 20. He says about this, about Jesus. He was foreknown, before the foundation of the world, but was made manifest in the last times for the sake of you, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Well, that's a powerful passage. And it's, the picture is, and there's a mystery here, and don't, I'll let you guys figure out the mystery. Uh, I'm not sure if we can, but um, it says God planned for Jesus to come and die as our savior, even before he created the world. And uh, he's carried out this plan for our sake. And, and, and so Jesus was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Um, and it's, it's a picture. I, th- I think it gives us a picture of just how compassionate and kind God is that when he created us, he knew that we would rebel and that it would cost the life of his son to redeem us. And, um, he, it, and, and he sent his son to redeem us. 
And so God is the one who brings about our salvation. We don't contribute to anything. And there's an interesting phrase that uh, Peter uses. He says, look in verse 21. He says, he says, but was made manifest in these last time for the sake of you who, and it's interesting, he says, who through him are believers in God. And it's just a subtle thing, but it's a reminder to say that you and I are believers in God, that we, we, we put our faith, that we are, we are, we are saved because our, our belief is even a gift from God. It is through him that we are believers. He could have easily just said, um, for the sake of you who are believers of God, but he says, but through him are believers in God, which tells us that even our belief, the fact that, that we go from darkness to light and that, you know, that I, in a, in a hotel room in Shanghai, you know, all those years ago gave my life to Jesus, that it was the work of Jesus in my life that drew me to himself, that uh, it is God who, who drew me and who, um, um, and even empowered me along with my will to make that choice. Uh, there's a mystery there, but I, I think it's, it's, it's quite a powerful, it's, it's powerfully expressed in verse 21, who through him are believers in God, who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and your hope are in God. Wow, that's, uh, that's powerful. So these are beautiful truths. These are very beautiful truths. And so Peter's reminding us, okay, the, in light of these truths, we need to live in response to this. Uh, why, why, given all that Jesus has done, you know, before the foundations of the world, that it was, that, you know, it was decided that Jesus was going to die for our sins to set us free. Why in the world would you go back to your old way of living? That's what he's saying. You have a wonderful inheritance. You have a living hope. Uh, and yes, you're going to face trials, but my goodness, look at, look what God has done. He has rescued you from your former ignorance and set you free. You're an adopted son and daughter of the most high. So why would you not be holy as a, why would you not be set apart? Why would you not gird up your loins for action? Given all that God has done for you. That's what Peter's getting at in this chapter. And he says, this um, this new life, one of the defining characteristics of this new life that we're invited into is love. That we are to show Philadelphia, that's actually the word, brotherly love. Um, we're to show brotherly love towards one another. Having purified your souls by the obedience to the truth for sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart from a pure heart you need to love one another um yeah that's powerful since you've been born again not a perishable seed but of imperishable through the living and abiding word word of god and it's interesting because he talks about this he says having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth and again, it's a reminder that uh, to obey the truth is, is not just with our, with our, we don't just believe, but we obey. It's, it's our whole bodies respond to the truth that God presents us with. And he says, we are to love one another. We are to be other-centered. One of my favorite uh, writers is a guy named uh, John Newton. I'll never have a John Newton far away from, uh, from my arm. He's always within arm's length. John Newton. 
John Newton. I always got John Newton. Um, John Newton wrote Amazing Grace back in the 18th century, but he, he would write in his diaries. And I always remember this in his diaries. He'd always talk about, you know, I was talking to this friend and old Mr. Self showed up again. And he'd refer to, you know, this, this selfish side of him as Mr. Self. You know, I was doing this and old Mr. Self showed up his ugly head again. And, um, and I think that's one of our struggles. And if you're other-centered, if you're other-centered, it's hard to be self-centered. And that's what Peter is getting at, that to be holy is to be set apart for God's purposes. It is to, as Peter, is not Peter the Apostle, but Peter who's with us tonight, uh, said, you know, to take up our cross and to, and to follow Jesus. It is to be other-centered, other-focused. Um, and uh, this is what it means to be born again. You're no longer the person you once were. And then he talks about, uh, Peter says, he talks about the seed that has been planted in us. It's, it's imperishable rather than perishable. It is uh, an inheritance that is imperishable. And he's reminding us that the work that God has begun is, if you can trust it, it's gonna, he's going to see it through to its very end. Uh, that this this new birth that we are intended to grow, right? When you're born again, you're intended to grow, and we we're not intended to wither and die. And even even the language that Peter uses, I don't know about you, but when he says not of perishable seed, but of imperishable things, it reminds me of a teaching of Jesus. What teaching does it remind remind you of when he talks about imperishable seed? The sower. Yeah, the parable of the sower. That's, that's what came to mind when I read it as well. And this idea that, you know, you need to sow in good soil and, uh, and grow and cultivate. And um, we're, we're called to grow up in Christ, right? That's on my radar these days because I'm growing so many things around the house and outside. And it's been so, so nice out and everything's growing. Anybody here like to garden? I took up gardening last year. This is my COVID, uh, my COVID uh, habit that I've taken up. But uh, yeah, it's it's been fun and, and seeing everything grow. But for things to grow, they it needs light and it needs watering and it needs a, a bit of care. And if you, if you care for something and if you water it and if you take care, you know, it things will grow. And I think uh, that's what. Peter's getting at is, you know, allow the word of Christ to grow in us and to transform us. Now, one of the questions I have for you is, is the very next verse. He quotes Isaiah 40. He quotes Isaiah 40. Let me ask you this. And don't look at your notes. Maybe I have it in your notes. Don't look ahead. Why do you think Peter, at this stage, he's talking about the imperishable seed, he's talking about growing up. Why do you think he suddenly quotes Isaiah 40? All flesh is like grass and the glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers, the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. How does this contribute to his point? I'm tempted to put you into a breakout room, but I, I, I won't, I won't. 
It depends on how you see the the word of the Lord. For me, the word of the Lord is the good news. Okay. Uh, or Jesus, He said that I the the word of God make flesh dwell among us. So endures forever. So we have Jesus. We have the good news, and it and uh, and therefore, I remember Jesus said, "Hey, even when you die, you will live again because I'm the eternal life." Right. That's what that's what reminds me of that. Uh, depends on how you see the word of the Lord. It could be just the Bible. It doesn't mean anything to anybody then. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I think. Oh, he, go ahead. He shifts our people back in the day, just as as they are now, are busy with satisfying their own pleasures, and that's what the early church people were tempted to do, even though they knew. The word like they knew uh, the teachings and he brings them back their focus back to like the eternal to the kingdom okay good good what else how, how else do you think this this passage fits in with uh peter's overall argument it's a little perplexing that's a, it's, it's not an easy question that i'm asking you because it's, it's not that obvious oh okay jack i think you're on to something yeah you're Temporary. The word of uh, the, can can be Jesus, isn't it? Because he's living forever. Yeah. Well, we're all focused. I mean, it would have been easy for Peter to just have focused on the last part and just said the word of God or the word of the Lord uh, remains forever, and that would connect with you know. Um, you know, the, the living and abiding word of God. But why does he quote the whole passage? Because that the whole time section? is the people doesn't see the Jesus, but still they believe to Jesus. They believe his resurrection without seeing him. I, th I thought maybe that's why, because he saw, and now he connected to the other people through that one, you can believe this one, because they, can, they didn't see Jesus to die and resurrect. Okay, yeah. I think it's about the things that you labor for. If you labor for things of this world, it'll just go away. You worry about you know, the flesh and the carnal stuff, it's going to be gone. But if you labor for like planting seeds and labor for God, then that's going to last forever. Yeah, that's, that, that's good. Yeah that, that could, yeah, that could be what he's saying. It could also be, I mean, one of the themes of uh, chapter one is this idea that we are here for a little while, right? And that we do experience trials, but for a little while. That our life, our, our life here sojourning as elect exiles is for a time, but we have an inheritance that lies ahead. And so it could be a way to emphasize, look, and it's kind of what you're saying there, Donna, that, that you know, we don't have, we're, I was going to quote Trooper, we're here for a good time, but not a long time. No, um, we're not here for a long time, right? And, uh, and it may not even be a good time at times. <laughs> There's going to be trials. And uh, our lives are like a flower that, you know, briefly blossoms, but disappears. Um, 
it's we live and we die, but the only thing that will last forever, the only thing that is eternal is that which is done in sync with God. For the word of the Lord stands forever. I wonder if that's what Peter is getting at, that uh, the word of the Lord remains forever and if that's the only thing that really will last, then why should we not gird up the loins of our minds? Why should we not be sober-minded? Why should we not act on this? Because at the end of the day, this is all that is really going to last. Um, I often hear people, and, and don't get me wrong, I mean, we, we, we're called to, to live meaningful lives, but I hear a lot of Christians talking about legacy. You know, what is going to be your legacy? And I've talked about this before, but what is going to be your legacy? And sometimes people give the little talk about, you know, what is your dash? You know, you're born in this year and you die in this year. What is your dash? What is your life all about? And uh, sometimes I, I think we, we think a little too much about legacy um, because the reality is um, my great-grandchildren will not know me at all. They're not like, I don't know my great grandfather. Um, and so I could have this great legacy, but I guarantee you a couple generations, nobody's going to remember. I was talking to my class the other day. I was teaching uh, church history and I was talking to my students uh, in, in this one, at this one university. And I said, um, how many of you know who Billy Graham is? Half of the class sort of knew him. Half the class never heard of him. Never heard of Billy Graham. This is a, this is a Christian school. This is a university, a Christian university. And uh, never heard of Billy Graham. Others say, yeah, I kind of heard of him, but I don't know who he is. Billy Graham's been dead for, what, two years? I think Billy Graham is uh, he's probably the greatest evangelist in church history. I think he is the greatest evangelist in church history, more than George Whitfield, probably more than the apostle Paul, though Paul didn't have the same travel abilities in the Roman Empire, <laughs> maybe. But Billy Graham spoke to 210 million people live, not counting on radio and, and, and TV. Um, yeah, Spurgeon is a good pastor. He's, he's, he's not an evangelist, so. Um, so, but people don't know who he is anymore. And my guess is within 10, 15 years, he'll be a distant memory. And so it's just a reminder that, you know, the all flesh is like grass, all the glory, like the flower of grass, the grass withers, the flower fails but the word of the lord stands forever and so sometimes i think as christians we we buy into this whole what is going to be your legacy stuff and i'm like you know what i you could have a you could have a statue of david wood at town center it'll come down eventually they'll eventually cancel me it'll get pulled down <laughs> they'll find out something from my past <laughs> oh he's a christian tear him down um but that's okay that's okay because 
the only way I can stand is insofar as I'm connected to Jesus. And, and, and I'm okay with that. Um, I don't need to have some great legacy. I don't need to have some foundation named after me. Because that's, that's not going to last. <laughs> like, Lord, that makes me feel better because I have no legacy. <laughs> yeah. Any thoughts on that? Am, am I, any pushback? Feel free to push back if you have any. I think you're right. We're to point everyone to Jesus. We're not to write our own names on the foundations of blah, 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 you know? Well, but you, you can see how depressing it would be, though. Like, without Christ, and if all you have is this world to live in, and you're going to try to make a legacy, and I hear this all the time in the media, uh, you know, what is going to be your legacy? And, you know, this person, they died, they're a real hero, and we, we need to remember them. And that's good. I, I get that, the desire to honor and the desire to remember. But if that is where our hope is, is in being remembered, everybody will eventually be forgotten. Even the most famous people are forgotten. And, and, and if, if there is nothing more to it than that, then that is very, very sad. But if you know that, hey, I have a beautiful, beautiful inheritance lying ahead of me, and it's intimately connected to the one who saved me, who loves me more than I can ever even imagine, and I shall see his face and I will live in his presence forever. My goodness. Who, who cares? And that's what I like about Billy Graham at the end of his life. And I think he's quoting from somebody else said this. I think D.L. Moody said this as well. Um, and then he said, if you hear one day that Billy Graham is dead, he says, don't believe it. He goes, I'm a lot more alive than, than ever. Uh, but you know, this life I live doesn't really matter, but I'm going to live forever in the presence of Jesus. And that makes all the difference. And that is, yeah, Pat, that's good. That's reason for obedience. Um, that is why the word of the Lord, that's what stands forever. The things of God stand forever. David. Yeah. I learned that you can actually have a legacy. I mean, I'm not sure if you believe it, but you, what you could do is whatever you do, however you live, like when you love your wife as you love the Lord, as recorded, that's a legacy. That's going to be like contributed to your long term when you're in heaven. It's all going to be remembered. Oh, that legacy, yeah. Okay. When you uh, when you get when you have money, you you use the money for the poor or whatever. And then Jesus, when he sees you, he won't say, "I don't know you," because you use all your resources to glorify God. So yeah. everything that you do from your love for Him will make a legacy that will be will never be forgotten it reminds me of um the the, the old hymn no condemnation um no condemnation now i find jesus and all in him is mine alive in him my living head no condemnation now i dread uh, jesus and all in him is mine alive in him my living head and clothed in righteousness divine bold i approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ, mine own. Yeah, this, this, yeah, the eternal rewards. That's good. That's very good. Wow, yeah, you guys are awesome. <laughs> <laughs>
I, I love the chat and I love hearing what uh, you guys say because your minds are just going to all these different passages and different thoughts. And uh, it is a very rich experience walking through the book of First Peter with you. This has been fun. David, I have a challenge for myself. Yeah. Uh, when, uh, when we go through everything, we have a hope. We have an afterlife. We have a things that's some kind of, I don't want to say the trade, but there is somehow you taking something more than you deserve and you try to be obedient, you try to be holy. But when I saw the way, at least I understand from the Jewish life, they're not waiting for anything. They just believe they are here to do the God's work and no matter what's happened for them they later, they do not have that hope we have as a resurrection and afterlife. But they says our job is. Always I'm asking myself, if you didn't have that hope, still did you, do you obey Jesus? Do you love him? Oh, good question. <laughs> That's very good. Well, I'll leave it to you to think about that one. Um, that, that is a good question. If you didn't have this hope, would you still, you know, if, if, it, was, if it was just for this life? Um, well, I mean, that's the question that um, Blaise Pascal, uh, he asked in, in terms of the, uh, the wager, right? Um, Blaise Pascal lived, uh, was in the 17th century. And um, he, um, he asked a question. He was a gambler. He had friends who were gamblers. And he says, here's a question. He goes, if there is no eternal life, is it still worth it to live a life honoring Jesus? And he says, yes, it is. Because, well, one, to live a life honoring Jesus is a good life. Second, if there is an afterlife, then you've done well. If you do not live your life honoring Jesus, well, okay, you can you're not living a really good life. But what's worse is that if it turns out that Jesus has eternal life for you, you're in a lot of trouble. So he says, if you are a gambler, which way would you gamble? It's, it's quite an interesting argument. Um, Same thing people use for God. You know, if there is no God, you know, at least you don't lose anything because you live good life. You're a good citizen, et cetera, et cetera. But if there is God, you gain eternity. Yeah. And what, what you do miss out on, though, is you miss out on in, in the life in the spirit and the life in the presence of God. We, we miss out on eternal life now. And, and that is that's where, you know, all these arguments eventually break down, because the benefit is the fact that we we can experience the presence of God now in the, here in the now. All right. Well, hey, I have in your uh, I have in your notes uh, some questions for reflection and response. And so, you know, some of the things you can think about this week and what ways does your thinking need to change in order to tie up the loins of your mind <laughs> and to be sober-minded? Um, what ways is your new birth affecting in the way that you treat other Christians, how you treat other people? And what ways is the brevity of this life impacting the decisions facing you this week, big or small? What matters? I think that'd be fun. Um, yeah, that's good. That's a good line, Joseph. Yeah, I like that. Cool. All right, well, let me close in prayer and uh, we will gather again next week. And guess what? We are in chapter two. Huzzah, we've made it to chapter two. Uh, good thing it's not like a 30 chapter book, um, but uh, we're, we're making our way slowly but surely. Lord, we thank you for your grace. We thank you for the incredible cost of sending your son to die on our behalf, 
who shed blood um, as a remission of all of our sins, pays the penalty that we could never pay, and that you have given us through faith, um, by your grace, uh, you have given us new birth, eternal life. And the one thing that will matter, the one thing that will last is your word, your truth. And so help us again to have perspective in all that we say and do. Help us to uh, walk circumspectly, paying attention to what you are doing in and around us, knowing that you're much more active than we realize. We commit our lives to you. I commit this class to you. Have mercy upon them, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Amen. Amen. Thanks for participating in this class. If you've been engaging in classes online, but you're not a part of a church community, we would love to have you join us. You can go to cachurch.ca to find out more about getting involved in the life and mission of CA Church.